So read along with me. We're going to start in verse 29 of chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, 29. This is Paul. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we've been killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we go on to chapter 9. He's just spoken. He's just, he's just talked, said some pretty strong things about who God's people are and how that establishes them forever in his love. And he goes on in chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed, over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use, another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy for which he has prepared for beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles so far. So that was a... Um, 
long and meaty reading for sure. And there's a lot in there. And, you know, it, um, there could be a whole series of sermons on just that alone. Now, before I begin, uh, I just want to thank um, Bill last week for sharing a, a wonderful message, um, an encouraging message. And, you know, I was reflecting on that, and I'm just so thankful that we as a church have people like Bill and Keith who have served God faithfully in churches for many, many years and preached His Word. And we are honoured to have them in our community. And for people like me to stand on the shoulders of those men is a great privilege, but it's a great privilege for us as a church. So I'm thankful for them. Thank you, Bill, for the message last week. Thanks, Keith, for um, com- contributing also as part of our community. We are blessed. Um, and I hope that you also feel the riches of that. So today, let's, let's move into what we're going to talk about today. You know, we're looking at the Uniquely Reformed series. We're sort of ducking in and out of it every now and then. We're not necessarily following it uh, religiously every week. And, you know, when we look at Uniquely Reformed, we're thinking of a series of doctrines or convictions or, or practices that, that, might, that you might recognize or that you might understand as part of um, being in a Reformed church. And we've looked at denominations and we're in the middle of looking at the five points of Calvinism. And we've looked at total depravity, you know, and, and we don't need to go into that again. But we, we understand that, that we, are, we are totally uh, yep, depraved, basically. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We looked at irresistible grace where, where God reaches out, continues to reach out with this irresistible grace. And, that, and to the point that we cannot no longer resist His grace. We had a little bit of a detour looking at hell and understanding what the doctrine of hell or the understanding or the concept of hell is as, is as well. And today we want to look at two of the letters together in Tulip. We're going to look at the U and the L. We're going to look at unconditional election and limited atonement together. But I've titled this message, I've decided not to title the message those words. I've titled it Confidence, Comfort and Joy. Now, why did I do that? Because it's easy, after a whole lot of reading and research, and, and look, look, I know that's probably more what I'm doing, but it's really easy to then you know, understand the mechanics of it and describe and explain and defend a doctrine uh, and to even to promote things like, uh, like this. You know, the five points, the doctrines, and, and how it works, etc. It can be easy after a lot of research and reading to do that. And it's not unimportant to understand that. And we will be looking at it today. We will. And it's necessary. But just a little bit more than that, I'd like us to understand what they are and how they work, why we believe them. Sorry, more than that, I'd like us to understand how they work, why we believe them, the mechanics of them. More than I want us to understand the mechanics of them, I want us to see what they show us about our Father God. That his complete work in our lives is so thought through, is so loving, that we can be filled with confidence in his work. That we can rest in the comfort of the Father's work and that we can rejoice in the work of our Saviour. That we can have true joy in our salvation. And so this sense is, you know, when we go through these things and today and the other things, I, my prayer is that our lingering sense isn't, Ah, I have the right theology. Rather, that our lingering sense is, Ah, I have a great God, an amazing God. And that's what I want to, we, we will look at things, but I want us to keep that in our background, in, our, in the back of our mind, and that's why I've titled it that. You know, understanding these things, whilst they're important, they don't save us. Holding fast to them and fiercely opposing other views doesn't save us. There are no special lines in heaven. There's not, you know, there's not going to be when you walk in. It's like if you've ever travelled internationally, you've walked in the airport, and particularly in Europe, you'll see there's different lines. You know, Schengen, um, or European Union people, and all other countries. There are no queues in heaven that says tulip people line up here, pedo baptists line up here, and if you happen to be the same, well, you can both line in. It's not like that in heaven. We're saved only by the finished work of Jesus on the cross, and that's true whether we're five point Calvinists or not. 
These things give us perspective, they certainly and most definitely do, and they give us understanding. But they must never be a source of pride or make us feel like we're better than they on the contrary, they make us humble, they make us thankful, they point us to God, they create awe, wonder and praise. And so as we go through these things, and I'm saying this because in my research I'm reading so many things on where people, Christians, actually you know, are really getting into each other and arguing with each other over these things and beginning to um, think less of each other. And that's not why we understand these things. So, confidence, comfort and joy. You know, it's easy to go deep and detailed and then lose sight of the wonder of God's work. The love that he expresses in the way he works to ensure our salvation. And how he brings us into a rich and loving and eternal relationship with him. One we most definitely don't deserve. And for me this is true. Now I've said the last few times that I've spoken on some of these sorts of things. I've said, and I'll say this again, this is no, in no way detailed enough as a message. It's not a comprehensive reflection of these two things. My desire is to give us a basic understanding of what they are and perhaps how they are distinct from some other mainstream understandings. And importantly, I hope that you will see, as I have, why they're good news, why they're comforting doctrines. There's always a few people, and um, I'm sometimes one of them, and I know there are others out there that would love to know just a little bit more detail, a little bit more history, a little bit more understanding of how this all works. And um, We're going to post some stuff this week. Uh, I think there's a video and a few bits and pieces, one that's a little more simple to understand, that even perhaps you could watch with uh, some of the youth or young people, but also some reading you can do if you want to look further. We will post more information this week. So, unconditional election, let's dive straight in. Perhaps a um, better word, and some of the commentators would say that sovereign election might be a better way to say it. But, we being Dutch, we do like tulips, we don't want to mess the tulip up too much, so we're going to call it unconditional election. But, I've got the brackets in the middle, sovereign election. You know, we all understand, and this is, this is universal, that someone, somewhere, at some time, made or makes the decision for the salvation of a person. Maybe it's ourselves. Maybe we understand that it's us. But we know that someone somewhere somehow makes a decision about a person being saved or salvation. Or someone elects someone to be saved. Or they elect themselves to be saved. So who or what determines that? Is it us? Is it someone outside of us? All views. Um, indeed, even other religions would have a view, would have an idea how that works, how you get to that ultimate point. For instance, Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and even Catholicism would have the view that we do that, that there would be uh, that performance matters, that the right performance, the right acts matter, that be behaviour matters, how you behave and, and walk through life, that, that good living, uh, generous living or, or healthy, whatever religion you're in, that, that all those things, they equal salvation, they get you to the point. You know, in the Catholic, in the Catholic world, that would be purgatory, that would get you into purgatory, or actually, quite frankly, uh, the right amount of money and things might get you less time in purgatory. Um, if we look at Buddhism, you know, you reach nirvana by living a good and humble life. You reach nirvana by having the right thoughts. You, you understand that that is the ultimate. In um, Hinduism, you reach moksha, or moksha, some people call it. That place where after a number of reincarnations, a number of times coming back, you finally get to the place called moksha, which is where you are at one with all. And each of those religions or each of those understandings would say that there is a performance or a behavior or something that you do. Most other religions need you to accomplish something to be saved. And as we shift over to Christianity or evangelical, uh, general evangelical understanding, there is such a wide scale even within that, isn't there? There's a vast scale of, um, of understanding of, of how we achieve salvation or who makes that decision for salvation. 
In fact, sometimes implicit in some of our in, in some of our general evangelical understanding, there's behaviour. There's there's you know you need to limit your sin. You need to limit sin enough in order to be able to be saved and accepted by God. You need to make good choices, or you need to make the choice. You know, God offers salvation, but you need to make the choice. You need to choose for God. You must have the desire, and those things then add an equal to salvation. Those are conditions on being saved. If you're a, a Hindu or a Buddhist or a, Catholic, a Catholic person, or if, in fact, even in some evangelical circles, there are conditions on being saved. Unconditional election gives us another perspective. The reform view is that none of those are true. Nor do our efforts ever influence God. There are no such conditions on God electing those to be saved. God's election has nothing to do with what the elect would or wouldn't do or could or couldn't do. There are no conditions on God that would inhibit him or stop him to induce or, or, or stop him from saving us, nor are there things that would induce him to save us. There's nothing we can do or could have done. No conditions that we need to meet so that that would influence God uh, to choose us. And that's why I put the word sovereign in there. Election is God's sovereign decision. When you're a sovereign, when you're a king, and they call them the old language for a king or an ultimate High priest is, is a sovereign or a, a, um, a Caesar or in the Japanese and Chinese heritage, the old, um, what they call those guys at the top then? I can't even remember. They would be called sovereigns. And a sovereign is a sovereign because what they say, what they think and what they do eclipses everything else. There is nothing else that can influence them. They are sovereign. Election is God's sovereign decision. To save whoever he pleases. Did you notice some of that language in, in, um, in Romans chapter 9 where, where God says, Well, I'll have mercy on you, or I'll have mercy on you. Know, I don't really need to give you a reason for that. Now, if election is God's sovereign choice, then that follows, and it actually follows out of our understanding of the, the T and the I, doesn't it? The total depravity and irresistible grace which we looked at. It becomes an understanding that if we are totally unable to save ourselves, and if we need to, where God, we need to respond to God's irresistible grace, and we will respond because He causes us to respond, then unconditional election follows out of that. John Piper puts it like this when he tries to gather those together. He said, If all of us are so depraved that we cannot come to God without being born again by the irresistible grace of God, and if this particular grace is purchased by Christ on the cross, then it's clear that the salvation of any of us is owing to God's election. He chose those to whom he would show that irresistible grace and for whom he would purchase it. Election refers to God's choosing whom to save. It is unconditional in that there is no condition man must meet before God chooses to save him. Man is dead in trespasses and sins. So there's no condition he can meet before God chooses to save him from his deadness. And we looked at that, didn't we? If we are dead in sin, then we're unable. A dead person is unable to do anything. And it takes God to then do it. You see, the Bible teaches us that God chooses people based on his own purposes. And his desire to show grace to undeserving sinners. It's a common theme in Scripture. <clears throat> we see it everywhere. There's, there's Scriptures everywhere. You know, Ephesians, let me just read out one and, I'll put, and then I'll put a few on the screen. Ephesians 1 verse 4 to 6. And you'll know this Scripture. He says, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and His will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. That's in Ephesians. He chose in love, in accordance with his pleasure and will, so that he would be glorified, that he would be made great. And there are a few more. Let's have a look at a few. I've put a few on a slide here for you. I'm going to read them off the slide. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. 
And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Romans 8 verse 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we have Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him, in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we know that his will was before time. And then one more, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Can you imagine that? And it blows my mind. Can you imagine that before the foundations of the world, before he created the world, that he had in mind you and I? Isn't that amazing? Now, whilst this traditionally, and I sort of intimated it before when you go online and have a look at some discussions, whilst this raises questions and objections, it is actually completely consistent with a sovereign God. If election, choosing who to be saved, was conditional, as in on us, then God is no longer sovereign. We remove his sovereignty. But it becomes dependent on us. Dependent on us making a choice. Making the right choice. You know, maybe we will. I mean, he really wants us to. He, he, you know, he, he lays it out there and maybe we will make the right choice, but then maybe we won't. And we become those that are in control. It's because of God's choice that anyone comes to faith in Christ. Jesus said, didn't he, in John chapter 6, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. You know, and it can be a little bit controversial, and I want to look, just think about that for just a short moment. This can be controversial and it can be difficult for us, particularly in our Western um, individualistic cultures. It's interesting, and, and I haven't got my notes here, but it's interesting. I was reading that often in Western cultures like Australia, perhaps the UK, uh, uh, Europe and, and, and the United States, in, in individual, Western, individualistic Western cultures, we struggle with this concept of giving someone else control. In many other cultures, these things aren't an issue at all. They are totally... Sure, exactly. They're totally happy. They understand the concept that, they're not, that it's not the human individual that is important. Just an interesting thing to, to do a little. I want to do a little bit more research on that. Why is that so? But in our culture, we might say something like, that just doesn't feel just. You know, there seems to be no justice. Why would God do it this way? Now, that's why we read what we read, because Paul anticipates this even to the audience that's reading it in the time. He, he anticipates that and he addresses that. In, in chapter 8, he speaks of election. He's very forceful with his language, the elect, you know, God's chosen, predestined. And he's very concrete with that. Then finishing with, you know, and God loves and there's nothing that can change that. There's nothing going to separate us from that. And in chapter 9, he begins by the recognition that just because you were born in the flesh, he talks about, just because you were born um, technically as an Israelite in the flesh, that doesn't mean that you're saved, which was quite shocking for them. He recognises that some won't be saved. And, and actually, you notice a little thing there, he almost wishes that he could trade places. He wishes, he says, I wish I could give up mine so some of you could. I wish that could be the place. And he acknowledges that just being born in the right church or born in the right um, uh, culture is not what's going to be saved, which is a little bit controversial, a bit new, a bit shocking for them. And he uses the example of, you know, and, and he talks about God being able to choose and God making sovereign choices. He uses the example of Jacob and Esau. You know, um, Romans 9, verse 10 and 11, where does, in, let's have a look at our Romans 9, in verse 10 and 11, just let me read that for you. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, they'd done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. He uses that example, and they would have known that. See, in the culture there, even though they were twins, in the culture, the firstborn would always be the one to receive the inheritance. That was just ingrained in culture. That was the law. That was the rules. That was how they understood it. And Paul shows them that God decided beforehand that those rules weren't going to apply. You know, Esau was going to be ended up being hated. Well, the hated perhaps is not that God hated him. So sovereignty would eclipse. And this was really interesting for the readers. And he anticipates their objections as he's built that from, from, from Romans chapter 8 and he spoke about it. He anticipates their objections and they would be the same objections that you and I would have in our Western culture. Let's have a look at that. We'll read chapter 9 verses 14 to 23 again. I think we'll have that on the slide. This would be the objection. So what shall we say? Is God unjust? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. You know, in some of the commentaries, and the word by no means, it's quite strong language. It's almost like we would say, don't be stupid. How dare you even say that? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you. Let's just stop there again. Now we understand that Pharaoh was wicked and Pharaoh wasn't saved. And yet God intentionally raised him up as someone who would not be saved just so that he would display God's glory. Now we know that God is not a megalomaniac, so we know that God has a bigger picture here. And the readers would have known that story and would have thought, wait, yeah, that's true. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, there's a purpose there. So that, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It's for God's purposes. So you'll say to me then, so why does he still find fault? Basically saying, so what's the point of us making an effort then? Why does he blame us for sinning when in the first place he decides whether we're going to do this or not? For who can resist his will? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Are you hearing a little bit of Job in there? Who are you to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? When he talks about the same lump, he's then helping them understand that the same Israel, some people in, the, in some people that were born of Abraham, would be saved and some wouldn't. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, using one to make his mercy look great in the other. <clears throat> Justice. When we understand total depravity and our sin and that we're totally unable ourselves, it is us who are saved that don't receive justice. Justice would be that we would be eternally separated from God. Remember our, our couple of weeks ago when we talked about hell. That would be justice. So when we think of justice, it is us that don't receive justice. Justice would be that eternal separation for sin. We receive mercy. Now you might also hear or think, well, how harsh is that? How unloving is a God that would send someone to hell and wouldn't just save everybody, save all humanity. You know, and there is schools of thought within the evangelical world that, that God is going to eventually save everybody. And in the end, they would say, doesn't a loving God do that? Doesn't a loving God just save everybody in the end? And, you know, we understand it as universalism. And we like it because it actually feels way better, doesn't it? It feels more comfortable. The problem with that is we know it's not true. We saw a couple of weeks back that not everyone is saved. We know that's not the case 
because we know hell is real. Jesus spoke about hell. He understood that hell, that separation from God, is real and that it exists. And there would be no reason for it to exist if the plan was for everyone to be saved. So that ship has sailed. He does, however, in amazing mercy, choose to intervene in the lives of some, some with that amazing mercy and win them over, showing his love and kindness to people who are also undeserving. And just one more, it's also often said, so why would you do evangelism? Why do missions if God has already chosen? And you might have heard that one before. After all, if God has chosen to save some, then they'll be saved whether anyone takes the, preaches the gospel to them or not. So why bother? The truth is that hearing and believing the gospel is the means that God uses to save those he's chosen to save. Paul Believed and taught election. That's right through the New Testament doctrine and right through his letters. Yet he was the most zealous missionary. He was zealous like no other in his missionary endeavours. Because he knew that God had chosen to save people through the proclamation of the gospel. Paul proclaimed it boldly and was persecuted for it even. You would think if, you, if it was going to be painful, that you might say, Well, you know, God's going to do his thing anyway, so why would I endure the pain? Paul understood that those that God was going to save, he would save them through the proclamation of the gospel. You and me, that's our role. In fact, indeed, if, if everyone's saved, if everyone gets saved, that actually is a reason that there would be no reason to do evangelism and mission because there would be no revelation necessary because ultimately everyone would be saved anyway. So election then is a massive ground for joyful praise. And this is how the, the biblical writers consistently treat this doctrine. They gush about it. They, they write songs about it. And of course, you know, in our culture, we don't get excited and sing when, when, things, when we get excited about something, when we understand something. But in the Middle Eastern culture, that's what they did. They'd write a song about something. They'd sing this wonderful thing. Maybe they didn't have print and maybe it's because they didn't have, you know, videos and the internet. So that helped them to remember things. They would sing and they would gush about understanding things and particularly when they were uh, joyful about something when they understood something that was great um, things like Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 5 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing even as he's chosen us in love having predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace it, it gushes with an understanding of that Romans 8 verse 28, we saw that a minute ago. In the face of our rebellion, in the face of our senseless um, disobedience and sinful determinations, he purposed something better for us. That was a song. 1 John 3 verse 1. You know, there is a song. We even know a song that's kind of paraphrased around this. See what kind of love the Father has given us. We exclaim with the Apostle John that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Look, those last few words, and we, we've, I think this is in one of the songs that we would, some of us might know, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. That God would call us His children, and because He calls us His children, and so we are. They would gush with it. There would be excitement around that. And through the ages, they and we have held this doctrine, not because it's easy, not because it's popular, but only because it's true. And like all the doctrines that Spurgeon held on, I've read a bit of Spurgeon in the last, as you can imagine, in the last couple of weeks. In all the doctrines that Spurgeon held, he believed this truth because he was convinced it's rooted and grounded in the Bible. Here's what he said. Whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it's written in the word of God as with an iron pen and there's no getting rid of it. To me, it's one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of Revelation. And those who are afraid of it are so because they don't understand it. If they could but know that the Lord has chosen them, it would make their hearts dance for joy. He's gushing now, isn't he? 
Okay, so unconditional sovereign election. Let's have a quick look at limited atonement. And in this one too, I've, 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 without wanting to mess too much with our tulip, I think definite, I put definite in there, and a lot of commentators will say that a better term would be definite atonement, that it would be definitely done for God, for those that God chose. And we're doing these two together because I believe they're linked. I think they work together. They both show us or teach us, and that's what a doctrine is, a doctrine definition of a doctrine is a teaching. These doctrines teach us God's magnificent planning and his magnificent purpose in our salvation. They might seem or sound a bit contradictory, but they aren't. They're complementary. You know, one is unconditional and the other is limited. So unconditional, we think, is, you know, all the way out there and limited is, well, it's not. You know, we, we don't have. But they don't. They don't oppose each other. They completely work together. You see, Jesus' work in the cross was actually the outworking or the fulfillment of God's election. This is how God fulfilled, or if you like, consummated his decision of election. This is how God was glorified. You know, in John chapter 17, Jesus used those words, and you, you kind of wonder, why is he using those words? And we'll put them up there. There's two verses there, verse 1 and verse 4. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What was the hour? The hour was his death, the shedding of his blood. And in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's how Jesus glorified the Father. When you glorify something, you, you bring to bear or you, you bring to completion something that someone, or is you, you lift them up and exclaim them as right. You make them look good. And Jesus was using that language to say, what you purpose to do for your children, for creation, I'm, I am now fulfilling that. And in that, I'm glorifying you. I'm actually bringing it to completion. It's how he glorified his father. You see, the issue of and the debt of sin was still in the way. God had chosen, but the issue and the debt of sin was still in the way. And God's plan was to affect the salvation of those he chose by atoning for our sin and the debt through the blood of Jesus through the cross. And although we're chosen... His justice and His righteousness still need to be satisfied, don't they? He's a righteous and just God. We understand that. And that was done, definitely done, in the atonement that Christ made. And, as we've seen in a couple of sermons lately, it would be enough. Jesus, God, His Father, would be satisfied. Jesus' atonement was definite for all. Yet not a, not a drop of Jesus' blood was shed unnecessarily. We use the word limited not to say that it was limited in its effect. It wasn't. It was completely enough. Rather, limited in its extent. And here's another couple of verses out of John 17 and help us understand that. Verse 6. I manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. It's another limited atonement. It's another tough one, isn't it? It's another one that raises something up in us. And when we think it through, if, if unconditional election is true, then Christ's atoning work couldn't be unlimited. Unlimited would be like God saying, Here. Through Christ, I've made atonement for all the sin of everybody in the world. I've made it unlimited. Not with any specific people in mind. So that it's there if, if and when you want it. That would be unlimited. That would undo any concept of election. And that would put us back in charge. R.C. Sproul, who teaches a lot on, on these five points of Calvinism, said this. What did God intend when he sent into the world his son to die. Did he intend that the death would actually save people or did he just hope it would? And John Piper, in his work on the five points of um, 
when he speaks on limited atonement, said, Was it the Father's intent to send his Son to die on the cross to make salvation possible for everyone, but with the possibility that his death would be effective for no one? That is, did God simply send Christ to the cross to make salvation possible, or did God from all eternity have a plan of salvation by which, according to the riches of his grace and his eternal election, he designed the atonement to ensure the salvation of his people? Was the atonement limited in its original design? And again, if it was unlimited, if we want to say that Christ's death was enough for every person, as in enough to cover every person's sin, and then it would satisfy God's justice, satisfy his righteousness, because it's enough, that, you know, he's, he's made enough for everybody's sin, there's enough to satisfy the debt and any sense of justice, then why would some still be punished and have to pay for their sin in hell. Remember, hell's real and there are people that are paying for their sin in hell. But if Christ's blood was enough, then why would God still exact justice from people in hell? It doesn't make sense to believe that Christ died for the sin of everyone and yet some still go to hell to pay for their sin a second time, a second payment for it. That would make God unjust and inconsistent. On one hand, we'd be saying Christ's blood's enough to atone for sin, completely pays the debt, there is no more debt anymore, it satisfies God's justice for all, yet then actually it didn't, or it isn't, because some of us we know will be separated forever in hell. Limited atonement, definite atonement, means we have definitely been reconciled to God through Christ. It's a doctrine worth understanding because it gets to the heart of the gospel. We don't say that Christ died so that sinners might come to him. Or Christ died for sinners. Jesus' work on the cross didn't make it just possible for sinners to come to God. Christ's work on the cross actually reconciled sinners to God. In other words, the death of Jesus Christ didn't just make us savable... It isn't there so that if we want it, we're savable. It's, it's an option. Hopefully, possibly, it made us saved, definitely. So you see, these two go together. They belong together. So why is it important for us to know or understand this? Why is it good news? <laughs> because sometimes, you know, if I read on the internet, some people struggle with this. Why is it good news? Remember I said... That knowing this and understanding it doesn't save us. That's not what gives us salvation. But it's important because it makes God great. Even greater. When you understand just how intimate his focus is. How intricate his planning is. How forethought and how... you know. I think of God's planning, and I think of before the, the, you know, before the foundations of the earth, that God plans things so carefully. And I think of myself when I'm trying to do a job on my car, or, and Sue can tell you this, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do something, or I'm going to build a barbecue bench at home, and I think and I forethink and I plan it all, and I, I think it's got to go like that, and I think I have it great, and I get there with my saw and my, and my drill, and I figure I didn't think something through well enough, and it doesn't really work. Doesn't happen very often for me, no, but still. But when I think of how intricate, and this is infinitely bigger than a barbecue bench. This is the you know, salvation of humanity. And I think of how intimate his focus is, how specific, how intended his relationship is with us, how great his love is to reach out specifically to save us. Right through our rebellion, he pursues us relentlessly with that love to bring us home. That's why I call this sermon Confidence, Comfort and Joy. Confidence, because it's not up to me. I don't go to my grave <clears throat> with that twinge of doubt. Did I do enough? Did I make the right choice? Did I, did I get that right? <clears throat> do I worry about that relationship I had there? Remember that time that I did? Oh my goodness, was it? Have I done enough? I have confidence because I don't go to my grave worrying about that. This gives me confidence. I can have confidence that an amazing God is in control despite my human efforts to stuff things up. 
I have confidence in a God who has and is working a plan that will come to pass. I don't need to help him. I don't need to get things into place. I don't need to sort of prepare the runway for him to land. There's nothing left to chance. I can have confidence in God's plan in the cross that it's going to be enough, that it was enough for me. And it gives me confidence. This doctrine, this understanding gives me confidence that I can always come into God's presence because I know that I'm accepted. Comfort? Why is it comforting? What a comfort to know that our Heavenly Father has made an amazingly intricate provision for our salvation. You know, if you let me plan it, it would be like my barbecue bench. But this is God. And I'm comforted that he knows what he's doing. And he's made a provision for my and your salvation. What a comfort to know that Jesus' death was enough. Remember he said it is finished. And we see in Isaiah that God said he was satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied. How comforting is that? It was enough for me. No more blood had to be spilled because Jesus' blood that was spilled was enough for me. And I'm comforted knowing that because of the cross and because God has me in his sights, I can always come into his presence. I can always come with repentance knowing that I'm going to receive forgiveness, knowing that he will embrace me and that he will extend mercy. What a comfort. And joy. You know, like the New Testament converts, when, when they got it, they sang for joy, didn't they? Did you see that first, that when those scriptures here, I think I read that out to you. Let's have a look of um, verse 48 of Acts 13. When they got it, when they understood it, they sang for joy. They said, and when the Gentiles heard this, this is a, you know, the Gentiles got this message. They realized, oh, we are. Some of us are. We are elected. We are. It's not just the Jews. When the Gentiles heard this, let's paraphrase this. When the Gentiles got it, when the penny dropped, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Joy. When you understand it, it brings joy. And like the New Testament converts, when they got it, they sang for joy. Joy is a manifestation, isn't it? Of, of relief, you know, of, of excitement, of, of anticipation, of intense feelings of, of well-being. When you have those things, when, when, you, when you're relieved, you know, when, you, when you're on the edge of your seat because you're waiting for something and then you get good news and you're relieved, joy comes up. You want to be, you want to be happy. Anticipation and joy comes out. All of those and more are reflected in the truth that God has chosen us to be with him forever. And he's done whatever was necessary to make that possible. And what's more, he's still working in our lives every single day. That's love. That is amazing love. And that gives me great joy. That should give us great joy. Just like the Gentiles. When you get it, when you think, oh, wow, that God would look at me like that. You know, I was, when I was doing this, the words of an old song come to mind. And some of you would know this old song, and some of you don't. Um, and I'm just going to read a few of the lyrics of it. And um, it's called Amazing Love. And, and some of you will know this. My Lord, what love is this that pays so dearly that I, the guilty one, might go free? Amazing love. Oh, what sacrifice the Son of God given for me. My debt he pays, and my death he dies, that I might live. Another verse. And so they watched him die, despised, rejected. But, oh, the blood he shed flowed for me. Amazing love. Oh, what sacrifice the Son of God given for me. My debt he pays, my death he dies, that I might live. And the third verse. And now? This love of Christ shall flow like rivers. Come, wash your guilt away, live again. Amazing love, oh what sacrifice, the Son of God given for me. My debt he pays, my death he dies, that I might live. That song was a song that was written when the penny dropped. What an amazing love 
That joy comes when the penny drops. So how, how can I not give glory to God? How can I not give glory to a God that would do that for me? How can I not bring glory to his name by letting the whole world know, by preaching the gospel and saying, this is what my, how great my God is and this is what he does? Understanding these, even just a little bit as we have today, rather than give us a sense of pride or, or one-upmanship, should cause us to fall to our knees in humble adoration, giving glory to God for his great, intricate and complete work on our behalf. You and me, so undeserving, yet so blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you um, again this morning for your word. God, we want to thank you for eyes that see us, for a mind and a heart that planned before time to call us home. Father, we want to thank you for your complete planning, your intricate planning, your amazing love. And Jesus, we thank you for being willing to atone, to make good what we've made bad, what we didn't do, where we didn't respond, where we moved in sin, where we created a debt. Thank you, Jesus, that your blood was enough. Lord, we want to thank you that um, your son Jesus glorified you. That his work pointed to what you did for us. The choice to choose us. Lord, we want to pray for those that have yet to hear. Lord, we want to be people that proclaim that you would use us as the means to bring that message of hope and the gospel to a broken world. So that people would sing as the Gentiles did when they finally got it. And that we would sing because we already have. Lord, we praise you and we lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen.